Uh, we're in Philippians chapter 4. I, I think Philippians 4 is one of the most pivotal passages on prayer, sometimes overlooked because we kind of jump ahead of the prayer and we get to the think on these things part. But I, I think that these words are important for us as we think about our prayers and God's promises. You, you cannot separate those two things. You cannot separate how you pray with the promises of God. If we know and if we believe and if we claim the promises of God, then it affects, it impacts how we pray. And, and we are in a serious time. It's a pandemic. There are people that are saying it will get worse before it gets better. There are people that are kind of blowing it off. But whatever it is, it has impacted every area of life. It's impacted sports on every level. It's impacted the stock market. It's impacted the service industry. It's impacted people's jobs and livelihood. It's impacted the medical community. It's impacted the local church. There's hardly any place you can go or anywhere you can be involved that this pandemic has not touched us in some way. And we can't treat it flippantly, nor should we try to come up with worldly solutions to how to fix all of this. And so God's got some answers. Paul has some words of assurance. Now, you've got to remember, Paul is writing Philippians. It's, it's the book of joy because he talks about joy so much. But Paul is also going through a tough time and has gone through a tough time throughout his ministry. Paul has not had it on easy street. Uh, he has been persecuted, he has been beaten, he's been left for dead, he's been imprisoned, and yet he talks about joy, but when he comes to chapter 4, he's been moving toward this the whole time. Now remember, there are no chapters and verses in the original letters. These were letters. Uh, the chapters and verses are to kind of help us divide the, the thoughts. But when he gets to chapter 4, he's telling us all of this has been to set this tone and in verse 1, chapter 4, uh, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I don't know if they were Baptist or Methodist or who they were, but he had to say rejoice twice because most of us don't listen the first time anyway. So he says rejoice always. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men, not just people you like. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. So we're supposed to rejoice always, and then in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I find it interesting that as Paul gets to verse 4, uh, we kind of jump there, but we forget that in the first part of chapter 4, there are two women that are fussing and fighting in the church, and he calls them by name. And he tells them, you need to stop being negative. You need to stop creating disunity. 
Listen, nothing brings people together more than crisis. And if God has to send a crisis to get you to stop fussing and fighting, he may do that. But God calls him out. So one day when we get to heaven, we're going to meet these two ladies and say, oh, yeah, uh-huh. you're the two women that Paul said were fussing and fighting all the time. How's it been up here for the last 2,000 years? Knowing that everybody that meets you go, oh, so you're the two ladies that have been fussing and fighting all the time. Paul exhorts the church, don't let negative people be negative. Correct it. Correct it. He's writing to the whole church, and he says, these two ladies need to be brought back into right fellowship. I I love what Manly Beasley said. Manly said, some people seem better by nature than most of us are by grace. Have you ever met a Christian that was always, 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 always negative? And you say, rejoice in the Lord always. They say, well, that's easy for you to say. Paul said it. And God never commands us to do anything in his word that he does not equip us with the power to do it. We are in the middle of a stressed out world. It's anxious, it's fearful, it's worrying. Uh, Charles Lowry told me about a a guy that came to him uh, after he was talking, you know, and Charles is always positive and always tells us how how to think better, uh, you know, and, and how to get on the right side of our thinking. And this guy walked up to him and said, well, Dr. Lowry, worry helps. And Charles said, well, how can you say worry helps? He said, because 90% of the things I've worried about have never happened. Now, I want to remind you of Charles and the three Ps, okay? This is important at a time like this. First of all, when crisis comes, don't take it personal. Don't take it personal because crisis is coming to everybody. Don't walk around with the attitude, I'm the only one affected by this crisis. Crisis is affecting everybody. Don't take it personal. Secondly, don't, it's not permanent. It's not permanent. It's not going to last forever. You say, well, what if it lasts for another 10 years or 20 years? Well, one day we'll be in glory. It's not permanent. This life ends. The problems of this life come to an end. But here's the big one to me of the three, and that is don't let it be pervasive. Don't let it be pervasive. In other words, if you walk out tomorrow and it's a sunny day and the the gnats are not flying everywhere and the mosquitoes are not biting and the pollen's not messing you up and you look up and it's a clear sky and a sunny day and you walk up to somebody and say, man, isn't it a beautiful day? And they say, well, don't you know there's a pandemic? They've let it become pervasive. They can't even say, yes, it's a pretty day. It's a nice day. Don't let it be pervasive. Don't let, I'm trying as quick as I can to talk about what the problems are. Don't be that kind of person. So let me give you a couple of thoughts here. First of all, negative thinking makes provision for the flesh. Negative thinking makes provision for the flesh. You know what negative thinking does to me? It brings out the worst in me. The worst in me. I'm not talking about not being realistic. I'm just talking about focusing on the negative brings out the worst in me. Negative speaking violates the word of God. Negative speaking violates the word of God. And fear 
is evidence that we don't think God is in control. When I'm afraid, I don't think God's in control. We sang earlier tonight, It Is Well With My Soul. Listen, that song was not written on a vacation on the beaches of Florida. It was written after a major crisis and loss of family with the songwriter. One pastor did a great job of outlining uh, verses 4, 5, and 6. He says, verse 4 is how you greet the day. Rejoice. Rejoice always. Verse 5 is how you treat every person. How you treat every person. And verse 6 is how you meet every problem. Be anxious for nothing. But in prayer and supplication, let your thanksgiving be made known to God. Your requests be made known to God. Now, Ron Dunn had a great little outline. It's written in the side of many of my Bibles just to remind me. But he, he said if you wanted a prayer list, people say, well, I, I've got a prayer list in my Bible. Well, he said, here's your prayer list biblically. Verse 4 is your praise list. Your praise list. What are you rejoicing about? What are you praising God for? Verse 6 is your prayer list, the things that you're interceding about. Verse 8 is your ponder list. What do you need to ponder on? What do you need to meditate on? What do you need to be thinking about? How do you change your thinking? And verse 9 is your practice list. What are the things I need to be practicing? In light of my praise, in light of my prayers, in light of what I've been pondering, what I need to be practicing in my life. So let's look at the first thing. Prayer must be consistent with God and his word. Paul is looking at the big picture and he sees God's hand in everything. Now we don't have time to to dig into this tonight, but God has chosen in his sovereignty to limit some things to the realm of prayer. God has told us to pray about certain things, and he has chosen to limit himself. He could do anything and everything. He can, he will. But he has chosen to limit himself to the level of our praying in some areas. When Jesus said that we were to pray, your kingdom come, well, you could say, well, it's going to come anyway. Yes, but we're to pray for his kingdom to come. We're to partner with him. It's certain that it will come, but we are commanded to pray that it come. In other words, God has given us the privilege of being co-laborers with him in his work. We get to be a part of his team, and we do that through prayer. The word and prayer cannot be separated. Stephen Charnick said, all the prayers in Scripture you will find to be reasoning with God, not a multitude of words heaped together. I remember one time, Manly, there was a meeting going on, and and they called on this guy to pray, and he went on. He didn't just pray around the world. He prayed around the world like five times. And he prayed for everything that he could think of. I mean, I don't know what he's trying to do. And when he got through, Manley just leaned over and said, I believe that old boy forgot to have a quiet time this morning. You see, Jesus said the Pharisees prayed long prayers. 
But you know the prayer that he heard? God be merciful to me, a sinner. You know the prayer that he heard? Lord, remember me today when you come into your kingdom. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. You know what prayer God hears? Help. Help. You know the prayer God hears? Lord, I don't know what to do, but I'm looking to you. You see, we're not here to arm twist God. We're here to cooperate with God in his promises and what his word says. Bob Cotton says, true prayer is rooted in the promises and covenants of God, in his past achievements, in his ability to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Back in the 1970s, when I was first really learning how important prayer was, Jack Taylor said that your, your spiritual life will never rise above the level of your prayer life. And, and I know that the lid on my life is the level of my praying. Bob Bakke was here a couple of weeks ago talking about praying in agreement. Remember what he said? No prayer, no power. Little prayer, little power. Much prayer, much power. Second thing, prayer is the proper response to any crisis. Verse 19 of chapter 1, Philippians 1, 19. For I know that it will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul believed that all, all, the, all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. But look at what Paul says. The key is the prayers of the saints and the provision of the Spirit. You need to note that he mentioned the prayers of the saints first. We are not an add-on in the work of God. We are a lead-off hitter in the work of God. Look at verse 19, chapter 1 and verse 19. I know that it will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying when you start praying, the Spirit starts providing some things that are operating in the realm of prayer. This whole letter has been moving toward this mentality. And now he gets to this phrase, be anxious for nothing. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, when we try to help God what we're doing, we're anxious that God's not able. When I try to help God do his work, when I say, Lord, I, you know, you just, just sit back on this one. Don't need to worry. I, I've got this one. I, I can handle this one. You see, I, I, I'm anxious because I don't think God can do it. Paul says, be anxious for nothing. And Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And part of what's happening in our world today, and even inside the church, is we are stressed out over things that we cannot control. I can't control if I'm going to be in a room and somebody starts coughing. I can't control it. But I'm not going to move into a cave and live in isolation for the rest of my life. But we have people that are stressed out about things that they can't control. And when you get stressed out about things that you can't control, you start borrowing trouble. 
you start adding trouble to your account and not trust to your account. You just start borrowing trouble. Well, this could happen, then that could happen, then this could happen, then that. Well, if that happens, then this is going to happen. Then, And before you know it, I mean, you, you're, you're in a state of depression because you've borrowed all this trouble. We need to give God the grace to do his work, and we need to know that God gives us the grace when we need it. Give God the grace to do his work, and then let God give you the grace when you need it. I'm grateful that back in the 1980s when I was a part of Sagamore Hill Church, that Don Miller was a part of that church, and he and a dentist in the church came to my house one night and said, we think that you need to help us reactivate the prayer ministry. We don't see anybody else on the staff that is interested in the prayer ministry, and God's told us to come to you. And I went, okay. And they told me that I needed to do that. And so I began to pray about it and think about it. I was recovering from some surgery, so I had some time on my hand. And God used that season to teach me about the importance of prayer. And then Don came to First Baptist Ada and helped us establish a prayer ministry, which is still vibrant and going today, 33 years later. And then we came here, established a prayer ministry. And we've had ups and downs and involvement in our prayer ministry, but I, and you've heard me, if you've been a part of Sherwood, you've heard me talk about this before. These are not original ideas with me. This is a, a, actually a Church of God Pentecostal uh, leader, uh, Doug Small, that taught me these things, and it, it just revolutionized my understanding about the prayer ministry of a church. A level one church prays in a crisis. You know what churches are doing today? They're praying, oh, we need to pray. There's a pandemic. We need to pray. The, the only time they pray is when there's a crisis. Oh, we need to pray. They just took so-and-so to the hospital. Oh, we need to pray. There's just been this accident. Oh, we need to pray. We, we, and we blow up our social media and our phone say, we need to pray. There's a crisis. And most churches, the only time they pray is in a crisis. The rest of the time, they basically say by their prayerlessness, God, if we need you, we will call you. Otherwise, don't bother us and we won't bother you. Prayer in a crisis. Well, that's limited to just expressing needs. That's going over the sick list. That's not praying kingdom kind of prayers. And we are to pray kingdom kind of prayers. Level two, the church has a prayer ministry. But the church's prayer ministry, it's like a silo. You've got the preschool ministry over here. You've got the children's ministry over here. You've got the music ministry over here. You've got the connect group ministry over here. You've got whatever other, you've got all these ministries. And then you have a prayer ministry. And each one of those ministries has a prayer component. But it's not the driving force of that ministry. That's why the statement on the wall of our church says prayer leads us to love God, to grow together, to serve others, and to change the world. We want to be led in a prayer environment. Level three, a praying church, Jesus is at the center of it all. He's at the center of it all. This past week, we had 500 kids signed up for Disciple Now. We had host homes. 
We had the, the lights, we had the speaker, the band was supposed to be here, and then we started just one day after another, it just starts eroding. And uh, I, I stood out in the atrium with some of our staff, with Dalton and with Tim and with Dan, and I forgot who else was there, but uh, somebody else was there. I'm sorry that I forgot, but uh, I'm 67. Just give me a break. Um, but I stood out there and I said, guys, when you go in this meeting about Disciple Now, here's all I'm asking, prayer and agreement. We don't need everybody's ideas. We need prayer and agreement. You need to be in agreement because you cannot leave a decision like this and somebody call one staff member and say, well, I was for going ahead with doing it. And they call another staff member and said, oh, no, we should have never done that. There has to be unity and there has to be prayer and agreement. And the only place you come to that kind of agreement is praying and in a prayer environment. And it was the right decision to make. We made it before we had to make it. But as I said to them, no offense, I don't need any emails. But as I said to them, you know, we're talking about sanitation and washing our hands. And I said, there's not a seventh grade boy alive that knows how to take a bath, much less wash his hands. So, you know, this is becoming a no-brainer for us. But let me give you a principle that I've learned in prayer. God tells a prayer warrior things he does not tell the average believer. God tells a prayer warrior things he does not tell an average believer. Remember in Genesis 18, these men show up. They're about to go. Sodom and Gomorrah is about to be judged. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham interceded for two pagan cities that God would spare them if he could just find some people that were faithful. God tells a prayer warrior and an intercessor things he doesn't tell the average person. God didn't tell that to Lot. The book of James says Lot was a righteous man. God didn't tell Lot was about to come. He told Abraham what was about to come. You know why? Because God knew Abraham would pray and he knew Lot wouldn't. It's an important thought. It's an important thing for us to remember. Prayer attitudes determine prayer actions. Rejoice in the Lord always. The, the problem is we tend to evaluate Scripture in light of our experiences. But what we are supposed to do is evaluate our experiences in light of Scripture. So we don't put our experiences on top of the Word of God. We put the Word of God on top of our experiences and we filter our experiences through what God has said. So we should rejoice always because God will ultimately triumph. I'm going to rejoice because I know who wins. We should rejoice always because God has a purpose for all things. Now, hold your place in Philippians 4 and turn to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Great, great psalm. I mean, it is so rich in truth. 
And David gives one negative command, and then he starts telling us what we are to do. He says, don't do this, start doing this. Psalm 37 and verse 1, do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently on him. Now, I'll just kind of stop right there for sake of time. So remember, he said this, he started out negative. Don't fret, don't be anxious. Do not fret means don't get heated up about evildoers. Don't get heated up. Don't get all worked up about evildoers. He's trying to tell them you need to praise in times when everybody else is panicking. The psalm is the key to learning how to stand on the promises of God. So look at the first one. Trust him. Trust in the Lord. What does that look like? Verse 3, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. In other words, it's an exhortation to feed on God's faithfulness, which will make you faithful. By feeding on the faithfulness of God, you will become more faithful. If I'm having a hard time trusting God, I'm definitely going to have a hard time praising him. If I can't trust him, I won't praise him. Second thing he says is delight in him. And the word delight comes from a root that means to be brought up in luxury and to be pampered. In other words, when I delight in the Lord, I am living in the abundance of the blessings of God's grace and God's goodness. That's my focus. Not his gifts, him. Warren Wiersbe said, if we truly delight in the Lord then the chief desire of our heart will be to know him better so we can delight him even more and the Lord will satisfy that desire. So we trust him. We delight in him. We commit to him. I love this word commit. It means to roll off your burden onto him. To roll off, roll over your burden on to him. Then we are to rest in him, verses 7 through 11. It's not a 7-11, it's a 7 through 11. If you're in your room by yourself, you can laugh right now, it's okay. The verb means be silent and be still. Chill out, chill out. You know what my tendency is? It's probably your tendency too is to not rest, it's to pace. Or it's to send a text message to somebody, you need to pray for me, I really need God to give me a peace, I really need to, I need to rest in the Lord, you need to pray for me. <laughs> copy, paste, copy, paste, send, 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 text thread, text thread, text thread, post on Facebook, post on Facebook. If he'd wanted us to do that, he would have told us about Facebook before it was invented. What are we supposed to rest in? Not how many people we've told 
We're here to rest in him. Can I tell you something? Our rest is not even in how many people are praying for us. Our rest is in the fact that Jesus is praying for us. You've said it. I've said it. I've told people I'd pray for them and then haven't done it because I've walked away and forgotten about it. Jesus never forgets about it. He's always praying. He's always making intercession. He's always interceding. And the Spirit is praying. So we rest in Him. Now, let's jump out of Psalms and go to Philippians because these tie together. So, I'm to rejoice in the Lord and I'm to be anxious for nothing. And then Paul uses these words, in everything. In everything. And somebody would write in the side of their Bible, well, you just don't know what I'm dealing with. So your problems are greater than Paul's. Paul is going to get his head cut off. He's been beaten with a lash. He has been left for dead. He's been lowered out of a basket. He's been shipwrecked. I mean, whatever your complaint list is, Paul could have had a complaint list. And we'd have to say, okay, you win. You've been through more than I have. So Paul says, in everything. You know what in everything means? In Latin, in Hebrew, in Greek, in Aramaic, in German, in French, in English, it means in everything. I don't care the language. It means in everything. You got a choice. You either pray or you're anxious. When I'm anxious, I'm not praying. Be anxious for nothing. Two thoughts. What I don't pray about, I worry about. What I don't pray about, I worry about. And man, I tell you, you know, every one of us are good at that at some point in our life. We're just worrying. We're worrying. We're worrying. What I don't pray about, I worry about. And that's not just the biggies, not just, you know, health crisis in our family, pandemic going on in the world, the economy is being affected, there's no March Madness, there's no Augusta National, I mean, all these, you know. I'm going to pray about it. It's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. I might like to have a different outcome to all that, but it's going to be okay. Second thing is, if it's big enough to worry about, it's big enough to pray about. Well, I only take the big things to God. I worry about all the other things. No, if it's big enough to worry about, it's big enough to pray about. What does the Bible say? Cast all your cares on him. All your cares. Well, I, I'm an hourly worker. I don't know what I'm going to do right now. Cast all your cares on him. I don't know what we're going to do. Our kids are going to be home for school for the next two weeks. I don't know how I'm going to juggle everything. Cast all your cares on him. Well, I'm living paycheck to paycheck, or I'm living off my investments, and I'm retired. Cast all your cares on him. God is not in heaven, and the angels are not in heaven going, Oh, my goodness, we never saw this coming. The world has lived through worse, and the world will live through worse. Cast all your cares on him. David said, trust, delight, commit, and rest. And Paul says, be anxious for nothing. Can I tell you, God is more concerned about how we respond to this crisis than we are. Here's what I think. 
This is a holy hunch. Or as Ron Dunn would say, in my humble and accurate opinion, which I highly respect. I believe that God is positioning us to pound heaven in prayer to release the next great revival. Because let's say, for an indefinite amount of time, we can't gather in large groups, but we have this technology, and we can go around the globe with the gospel, and we can go around the globe with prayers, and we can reach people that are confined to their home and quarantined for 14 days. You can FaceTime with them. You can pray with them on social media. There are a lot of things we can do right now. I believe that God is getting us to the end of our rope so that he can bring another revival and awakening. Because I believe in the last days, the Bible says, he's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. God is going to do another great work before he comes. And so what if the thing we're worried about right now is actually the launching pad of the greatest move of God we've ever seen in our lives. What if that's it? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Yes, it is. It's worth it. It's like the, the prayer in Chronicles. Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And out of that came a great move of God. Listen, when you call on him and he will answer you and show you things that you don't know, amazing things that you can't even imagine, what if this is what God is orchestrating to bring the world to its knees? To say, God, there is no God but you. There is no hope but you. What if the pandemic leads to a revival? Could we should be praising God for the privilege of being his church and his intercessors at such a crisis moment. I mean, we should be thanking God. God, that of all the people, of all the ages, when this is hit and our whole world is coming unraveled, that you have hit it at our time, in our lifetime, for us to be able to intercede on behalf of other people. Thank you that you've put us in this position. Andrew Bonner said, I have never sufficiently praised the Lord and never can. We should always wear the garment of praise, not just waving a palm branch now and then. Why? Because always, not most of the time. Paul's not saying, hey, power positive thinking. He's talking about how you get your face before God's face. Every battle you face is temporary. And every promise of God is eternal. Every battle you face is temporary. And every promise of God is eternal. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So let's just walk through these words quickly. Prayer, that's a general term. That's the broadest sense, the broadest word for prayer. It's communion with God. It's taking your burden to the Lord. You're praying and turning it over to the Lord. Supplication is a deeper prayer. It's a deep desire. It, there's an urgency, there's a fervency in that word supplication. Then the word request deals with specific details. 
Not just Lord bless and Lord help, but Lord bless what? Bless who? Lord help what? Lord help who? These are specific details, nothing vague, but specific praying in light of the promises of God. And we're to pray and have supplication and request with thanksgiving. Why? Because praise chases away fear. So let me give you some thoughts here, some points to ponder. When I do this, when I pray and make supplication and request with thanksgiving, the first thing it does, it gets my mind off my problems and on God. It gets my mind off my problems and on to God. Stephen Olford used to say when problems would come into his life, he would look up to heaven and he'd say, over to you, Jesus. You're going to have some stuff tonight, tomorrow, this week. It's just, just going to overwhelm you. Just over to you, Jesus. I can't answer it. I can't do it. You can. Secondly, it causes our faith to grow. It causes our faith to grow. Again, I'll, I'll quote Ron Dunn, and you ought to read his book on prayer. You only learn to trust God by trusting God. And you never trust God until you have to. And God will see to it that you have to. I'm going to say that one again. You only learn to trust God by trusting God. And you never trust God until you have to. And God will see to it that you have to. Some of you will remember Manly Beasley's quote, Faith is believing that it's so when it's not so because God said so, so that it will be so. It causes our faith to grow. The more I pray, the more I learn how to operate in the realm of faith. Thirdly, it leads us to pray expectantly. It leads us to pray expectantly. Let your requests be made known to God. That preposition indicates a face-to-face relationship with God. Now, we're going to go real quickly through this last thing, but I've got a fourth point, and this, this may be the best one. This level of praying comes with a promise, and the peace of God, the peace of God. Those first three, when you get your mind off your problems onto God, when it causes your faith to grow, when it leads you to pray expectantly, that kind of praying comes with a promise. God says, you will have my peace. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. We can't even comprehend. You've been in those situations. I've been in those situations when the world seemed to be crashing in and and you, you stood with people in that and they just seemed to be overwhelmed with grace and with peace and with confidence. That's not something they worked up by looking in the mirror before they walked out. That's a confidence that comes from inside the peace of God. That's beyond comprehension. That is what is the unexplainable nature of a Christian in a crisis. We don't act like the world in a crisis. We act like Jesus' people in a crisis. 
will, what will it do? The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That word is garrison. What Paul is saying, when you pray this way, the peace of God comes and God builds a fortress around your heart and around your mind that the enemy can't penetrate. God puts you inside the walls of a fortress of his peace. Not because the situations change, but because the Lord is unchanging. He says it will guard. That's certainty. It's not, well, I hope it guards me. Oh, it will guard the peace of God, the person who's making the promise. Who's making the promise? God's making the promise. It will surpass. That's the scope of it. It surpasses. It goes beyond all my ability to comprehend in Christ Jesus. And what is one of the names of Jesus? The Prince of Peace. So tonight, when you lay your head on your pillow, not knowing what news will break while you're asleep, not knowing what you'll face tomorrow, just remember that in prayer, God promises a peace that is beyond comprehension. Go in the peace of God. Live in the peace of God. Think in the mind of Christ. And let peace surround your life in a way that makes people ask, why are you so positive in such a negative time? It's because... I have the peace of God. And if you want to know what that's like, I can tell you how to get it. It's through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Tell somebody about Jesus this week. They need it, and we need to share good news. God bless you. Good night, church family.